Mark chapter 14, if you found it, say amen. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. I want to talk to you tonight for a little while on the power of prayer. Lord, I thank you, God, for your people, for your church. God, 27 years. And so I don't remember the details, but I remember the main point of the message And that is that God wants a real relationship with us. And that relationship happens through prayer. Prayer is not about memorized phrases. It's not liturgy. It's not rote and repetition. Prayer in its best and most useful form is relational. It's a conversation between a God that we have a real relationship with. Think about it with me, if you will. If we talk to our spouses the way we talk to God, all of us would probably be divorced. I love you, I love you, I love you. Well, that one works. Move, move, move. I need you, I need you, I need you. Move, God, move. It's like cook for me, cook for me, cook for me. Do my laundry, do my laundry, do my laundry. If we just repeated the same phrases over and over every day and only asked for what we wanted from our spouse and we never connected our heart and mind to the conversations, we wouldn't have a very productive marriage. It wouldn't take long for our relationship to grow distant and damaged And if you stayed married, it would be because of obligation, not really because of passion. And that's not God's will for our relationship with him. What we need more than anything else is to enter into a real relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the things we as Pentecostals have is what's known as a very strong literalistic hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a method or a methodology for how we look at, view, and study the Scripture. It means when I talk about a strong literalistic hermeneutic, it means that we believe that the Bible really means what it says. Amen. We do believe that, don't we? We assume that the most obvious literal meaning of a passage is what it's really trying to tell us. 
This is opposed to a rapidly advancing method of biblical interpretation that is quite literally, it really says that that erroneous view, they say what it means to me is what it means. In other words, it revolves around me. What I think, what I want it to say is what it means. That is an error. That is a biblical error. I don't adjust the Bible to fit my views. I adjust my views to fit the Bible. Amen. One weakness, though, of being so literal is that it leads us to divide every subject into heaven and hell categories. Can I go to heaven if I do this? Will I go to hell if I do that? And so being so literalistic, it causes us to divide everything into those two categories. When it comes to prayer, it is a sin not to pray. That's true. Amen. You can say amen. It'd be a good place to. It is a sin not to pray. But we don't only pray so we don't go to hell. We tend to view most every subject from a punitive perspective. And that causes us to miss the joyful aspects of what we're talking about. Have you ever worshiped just because the preacher made you feel guilty for not worshiping? Have you ever said amen just because the preacher said, say amen? You have to have the Holy Ghost to be saved. But the Bible doesn't call it the requirement of the Holy Ghost. What does it call it? The gift of the Holy Ghost, right? And if we're not careful, we begin to view everything in terms of the punishment we get for doing or not doing it. Luke 18 and 1. The Bible says, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not faint. Now, in our modern terminology, the word ought, if I say, well, you you ought to think about doing this, or you you ought to go down and and, uh, you ought to go wash your car, or you ought to go mow your grass, well, that, that means that it would be a good idea, but it doesn't mean you have to, right? But the word ought in the original Greek has a different connotation. The word ought in the original Greek, it means it is necessary. You must, a necessity of law, a command, a duty. So when Jesus said, he spake a parable unto them to this end, he told them a story to teach them the lesson that men ought always to pray and not to faint, that it's necessary for men to pray, that it is a necessity of law, it's a commandment, it is a duty of man to pray. You can see that the biblical use of the word ought is a lot more forceful than the word the way we use it now, right? We believe that we are commanded to pray. Can I get an amen? See, right there, you did it because I asked for it. If you really wanted to do it, you would have done it already. Thank you. 
We believe that we are commanded to pray. But if we only pray because we're commanded or because we have a need, we will miss the most rewarding aspect of prayer, and that is developing and deepening a real relationship with our God. The true joy of prayer is relational. We are servants and children of God. God is our master. What he commands us, we must do. If God says it, we've got to do it. We are servants to his will and we're servants to his word. But we are not only his servants, we are also his children. Without this understanding, we lose the joy of a lot of the things that God has prepared for us. A servant serves out of obligation. They serve because it's their job, their occupation. They serve because it's their requirement. A servant serves out of obligation, occupation, or requirement. The goal of the servant is payment or escaping punishment. If I do what my master says, I'll be taken care of, I'll, be, I'll receive a wage, or I won't get punished. The prayers of a servant are prayers of requirement. There are three places in the Bible where the term Abba, Father is used. Two by Paul, one by Jesus, which we used as a text. I want to look at them. Paul wrote two of these Abba, Father passages to Gentile converts to Christianity, non-Jews. They were outsiders who came into a culture that began with a very Jewish foundation. They, for their entire lives, had not been viewed as spiritual equals when dealing with the Jews, but now that they're in the church, they're equal with everyone else in the church. They were not to view themselves as second-class citizens or outsiders anymore. Look at Romans chapter number 8, verses 14 and 15. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Thank the Lord for that. Now look what he tells them in verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In verse 14, Paul makes a declaration of relationship. If we're led by the spirit, we're the sons of God. We're not just servants. We're not slaves, we're the sons of God. And then in verse 15, he contrasts the spirit of adoption to the spirit of bondage. Let me read it again, verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He said, you didn't get a spirit of bondage, you're not just a slave. That's not why God saved you, is to be his slave. You got the spirit of adoption. You were adopted as a child of God. He said, the spirit of bondage brings fear. This bondage is slavery, to be a slave or a servant. Where the spirit of bondage is, there is an attitude of being a slave. The spirit of bondage brings fear with it. That word fear used by Paul it's the word phobos, where we get the term phobia from. It means alarm, fright, dread, or terror. 
if I am a slave and my master requires me of something, I obey out of alarm, fright, dread, or terror. If I don't do what he says, I'll be punished. If I'm a slave and my master requires me to pray, then I'll pray so I don't get punished. Therefore, I pray out of fear, dread, alarm, fright, or terror. My prayers are through intimidation and dread of what happens if I don't pray, if I don't pray enough, or if I don't pray good enough. He said, you've not received the spirit of bondage to fear, but the spirit of adoption. Now notice, if if you could put that verse back up for me. Verse 15. Look, if you have not received the spirit of bondage, when you see the word spirit in its lower case, that is talking about an attitude or human spirit. When you see it capitalized, it's talking about God's spirit. He said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage, but look when it talks about the spirit of adoption. It's capitalized. In other words, God does not bring bondage. God brings sonship. God brings relationship, not fear. God brings relationship, the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of fear where I have to do all this because if I don't, God's going to somehow punish me. That's not the motivation. We do what we do because we're in a relationship with God who adopted us into his family. Amen. And so he says, he says that, we, that we have been, we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Everybody say, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is an interesting phrase because it's actually two different languages. The word Abba is Aramaic. It was the common language of the common people in Israel during the time of Christ. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The disciples spoke Aramaic. It was the common language spoken in that part of the world at the time. The word father in the original is the Greek word pater. It's where we get the term patristic or or, uh, where we get... Uh, posterity, that where it talks about the father figure, the patristic figure of a family. That is Greek. That was the common written language of the day. It was formal. It was, if you were to, to, to go to court and you had to write something official, it would be written in Greek. But when you were talking, you talked in terms like of Aramaic. The word father in, in the Greek It's talking about the father of a family. Here, Paul was talking about how we were adopted by the Spirit of God. And so he says, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means father, but it's not formal, it's personal. It's relational. It relates more to when you would call your dad, daddy, rather than than father. When When I was a kid, I had to call my dad, Poppy. Poppy is, is Spanish for daddy. And, uh, and it was all good until I got to be about nine or 10. And when I said, Poppy, I noticed my friends sort of smiling at me. And so I started calling him pop. Well, now all my pastor friends and preacher friends call him pop. They'll call me and say, how's pop doing? I guess I outgrew Poppy, but you know how it is. But Abba is more like saying daddy or Poppy. 
Jewish children called their father Abba in everyday speech. If we were less relational, you know, like, he's my father. You know how, hello, father. Abba is more of an everyday relational term. So Paul said we cry, Abba, Father. It's two different, it's the same, the same relationship, but it's two different ways of viewing it. As Father, he makes the rules, I do what he says. As Abba, I love him and I trust him. And so when he tells me something, I know it's for my own good. As Father, I make the rules of this house and you do it or else. I told my girls when they were little, I said, this is not your house, this is my house. You're here by my mercy. As long as you're here, you follow my rules. That was father. But Abba comes out when they want a $6 coffee and I buy it anyway. But when Paul used the terms Abba, father, he's making a point. He's saying, yeah, we do what he says because he's father. He makes the rules. I don't make the rules. He establishes what's right and what's not. I don't. But at the same time, he's not just my father that wields a, a belt or a paddle. He's my Abba. He's my, he's my, he knows what's best for me, and I trust him. And I, I, I heard a great story. Justice Murphy called me today. And he was telling me how he wanted to sleep in. He's been, you know, he carries mail. And so he's been working like crazy over the holidays. And so he was off on New Year's and he wanted to sleep in. And he said it was early in the morning that, uh, that Zayden went and woke him up. And he said, Dad, you want to play? He said, no, I want you to go back to bed. I said, that's fine for now. I said, but in about 20 years, you'll think back and you'll want to say, you'll wish you would have said, yeah, I do. My girls, I used to have to tell them a story. I made up a character when Ellie was just a little. She had trouble sleeping. She had a lot of, I, I guess it was anxiety or something. I don't know. So we, I, every night I told her a story, and I made up a story about a dog named Bacon the dog. And the only reason was because I was just trying to get her to sleep. I didn't know when I made it up that about the world's only talking dog that I'd tell that same story every night for about eight years. Every single night. Daddy, tell me a bacon story, bacon the dog story. And then Kate got to listen. And then for years, Dad, tell me a bacon the dog story. Dad, and in my mind, I'm like, I am so sick of this story. I'm so tired of telling bacon the dog stories every single night. In the story, my wife, she's afraid to fly. She will not get on an airplane. So in the story, I make brownies and I, instead of powdered sugar, I put, I grind up sleeping medicine. And she falls, we give them to her and she falls asleep and the girls just laugh their, laugh their heads off. And then she'd wake up somewhere else in the world not knowing how she got there. The girls never found, they never found out because they always fell asleep before I got that, that far into the story. And I thought, man, I just, I am so tired of telling Bacon the dog stories until the day they never asked for him again. And then I prayed, God, I wish that, that Kate would ask just one more time for a bacon the dog story. And you know what? It's never happened. And so if any of you have kids that need a bacon the dog story, 
I'll tell them. But it's the difference. It's the difference between a father that just makes rules and a dad that has relationship. Paul was showing both when he wrote Abba, Father. He's saying it's relationship and submission. I do what I do because I submit to his will, but I don't do it because I'm afraid of him. I do it because I love him. And when he said, Abba, Father, let me move on. I'm gonna, it's going to be a long time if I don't. Let's go Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Again, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth, forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Praise God. He's my Abba and he's my father. I do what he says because he's my father. But I do it out of love because he's my Abba and I know he's not going to do something that's not for my own good. Then, the use of Jesus the passage that we used as a text tonight. The backstory of that text is that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Within just a matter of moments, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be mocked, and he's going to be crucified. The next few hours of his life are very literally going to be torture. His blood is going to be poured out of his body. He's exceedingly sorrowful. The Bible says that he was exceedingly sorrowful. His flesh did not want to suffer. His humanity did not want to hurt and die. He was not looking forward to the feeling of the nails as it pierced his skin and went through his muscles and nerve endings and veins and popped out the other side. He did not want to hear the sound of that hammer on that nail. He did not want to suffer the whipping on his back and the crown of thorns and being spit on and made fun of and mocked and his clothes being torn off and him being shamefully exposed on the cross. None of his nature, none of his humanity wanted to deal with that. But he also knew that he had a divine identity and a divine purpose. And so he knows the only way I can stay true to my purpose and my identity, I've got to pray. Mark 14, 35, 36, and he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Lord, I, don't, I, know, this is, I know this is why I was born. I know this is why Mary gave birth all the way back in that manger 33 years ago. I know this is why the angels sang and the wise men came and the shepherds came. I know that this is why I was born. But if I could just somehow not have to do it now. If it's possible, let this hour pass from me. And then he said, Abba, Father. I'll do what you say, and I trust that it's the right thing. When you get in a relationship with God, 
to where you can face anything in life and do what he says because he's father, but trust him because he's Abba. That's when you found a relationship with him. Everybody all right? Let's go a little, let's go further. When we pray, there is power in relational prayer. When I pray because I feel like I have to pray, I've watched the clock, I don't have my mind and heart in it. But when I'm just talking to my friend, to my Abba, there's something that happens and transforms my prayer life. When we pray, we will either pray transactionally or relationally. A transactional prayer is just like it sounds. It's a transaction with God. It's a deal. We're we're bargaining for something. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. God, I'm giving you this prayer so you will give me fill in the blank. God, I'll, I'm, I'm giving you my word so that you'll give me my blessing, and it's a transaction. The Bible teaches us that God is powerful. He's able to control the physical and spiritual worlds. He's able to perform miracles. God can do He has unlimited resources. It's easy to want him to simply be our benefactor and give us what we want when we want it. But when we treat prayer like a transaction, an exchange of my words for his services, if he doesn't do what I want him to do, then he hasn't lived up to his deal. And so I can feel justified if I'm angry at him because it didn't turn out like I wanted it to because I feel like somehow he didn't live up to his end of the bargain. I made a deal with him, and he didn't do it. God, if you do this, I'll do that. We can become convinced that he doesn't hear us or care, with no thought to the fact that what we're asking for may not be in our best interest at all. Some of the prayers I prayed, if God would have given them to me, I'd have been in big trouble. One of, the most mis, one of the most common misconceptions about prayer is that it needs to be done in a certain way, following a certain formula, just the right religious words or phrases. If I'll pray in King James Version, it'll mean more. But the Bible presents a whole lot different view of prayer he that presents one that looks like a conversation. Exodus 3, Moses argued with God about going back to Egypt. 1 Kings 19, Elijah complained about feeling alone. Luke 1, Mary responded to God with a song. David's prayers weren't rigid, formulaic either. They were entirely conversational. He bluntly asked God in chapter 2, why does the heathen rage? God, why does a sinner seem to be doing so good? He pleaded with God in Psalms 5 when he said, Lead me in the right path, O Lord, or my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. Over the course of several chapters in Psalms, David went from expressing frustration with the world to pleading for God's help 
to talking about God's love, to thanking him. One of my favorite statements by David is Psalms 27 and 8. When thou saidest, seek my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Here's what the New Living Translation says of the same verse. My heart has heard you say, come talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. When you said, seek my face, my heart set my face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Can I tell you that God is calling us to seek his face? God is calling us to talk to him. Not transactionally, God, I'm only doing this because I need something. God, I'm only giving you these words because I want something from you. But God, I'm talking to you because I need you and I want to be in your presence. David opened his heart to God. He experienced the depth of God's own heart. When we see prayer as relational rather than transactional, you reach past, we can reach beyond our circumstances and connect to God's unchanging character. My circumstances change all the time, but God's character never changes. Instead of trying to manipulate God with my prayers, I can talk to him in the same way I talk with my closest friends, knowing we don't have to pretend or perform to get his attention. I was riding down the road the other day, and I had something pop in my mind, and I needed to tell God about it. I needed to ask God about it. I needed to talk to God about it. I didn't, I didn't stop and use a whole bunch of formal King James Version language. I didn't, I didn't uh, have a whole introduction that I felt like I had to repeat before I could talk to God. I was just driving down the road, and out of the blue, I said, God, I need you to do this. God, help so-and-so. God, I pray, and, one, and I prayed, God, help me to have the right understanding of a situation. The more I've invited God into my life, the more I've become aware that he's faithful in every season that I go through. In the good times, the difficult times, in difficulty, in blessing, when I spend unguarded time in prayer with God, Sharing my heart, my questions. I learn a simple truth. God is with me and I can trust him. God wants us to come to him and lay everything. Our dreams, our desires, our struggles, our angers, our frustrations, our temptation, our fear, our confusion, our heartache. Lay it all at his feet. Not just so we'll feel known by him, but so we can learn his heart. One of the greatest, one of the greatest proposed fallacies of the word of God or of, is when people say, don't question God. That's not biblical. Job spent 42 chapters questioning God. He didn't charge God foolishly. He didn't blame God for everything that went wrong. But he asked God, Lord, why? David said, why does the heathen rage? Why does it feel like all the bad people are getting away with everything and I'm struggling here? You ever felt that way? I've felt that way. You can question God, but you cannot question him in an in accusation. 
I want to give you three keys to praying relationally, then we'll try to move towards finishing. Number one, three keys to praying relationally and not transactionally. You know what I mean when I'm talking about transactional? Not, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm making a deal with God, not just praying and saying, God, give me this and I'll do that. I, I, I'm not a big brother, uh, Brother Green was talking about fleeces and I, and, and it's from the story when we talked, when he, anybody remember what he said about laying a fleece before the Lord? Did anybody wonder what that meant and you didn't know what it really meant? Laying a fleece before the Lord goes back to the story of Gideon. When God told Gideon, go fight against the enemy. And Gideon didn't really believe it, didn't know what to do. And so he laid, the, he had, a, he had a, a sheep's fleece and he laid it out before the Lord and he said, now God, if you really want me to do this, then let, let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. And so he got up and it was that way. And so he decided, well, let's reverse it and try again. His fleece was because he didn't trust God. And so I don't, I don't, it happened. One person did it and they did it at a weak point in their faith. And so I don't personally, I don't personally do that much unless I really feel like God told me to. I had a pastor one time out in a God-forsaken little town in, in, in the driest part of Texas there's ever been. And, uh, and he called me, he wanted me, when I was a youth pastor here, he called me and he wanted me to come out there and pastor, the, take his church and pastor it. I'd preached about 10 revivals there. And so I told him, I said, I'll pray about it. And so as soon as I got off the phone, I got down on the so by the sofa and I said, God, please don't make me go there. I prayed about it. But he told me, he told me, he said, I want you to come preach for me. He said, and just tell the Lord that if he wants you to come, that people will get the Holy Ghost. Well, I thought, well, that's not a good, a good fleece because that means that God has to let people die without the Holy Ghost to get me to go somewhere if he wants me to. So that's just not my thing. So here's what I want you to do. Because that's a transactional. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. That's not the basis of prayer. It's hard for us, to, but aren't we sort of programmed to be that way in prayer? Don't we sort of default think that way? Am I talking to anybody or am I just wasting your time? Isn't that sort of the way we mentally approach prayer that, God, I'll give you this, but you got to give me that? I'm making a deal with you, God. And that's not the way that God wants us to be. He wants us to pray, Abba, Father, you're, I, I trust you. I pray from my heart. So number one, I want you to focus on God rather more than what you want from God. He wants us to make our requests and petitions known. He wants us to tell him what we need. But that's not all he wants. Amen. How, how, hey, dads, how much would you like it if the only time your kids talked to you was a few weeks before Christmas and they were just telling you their Christmas list? It wouldn't be much of a relationship, would it? Focus more on God himself rather than what you want from him. Make your main goal in prayer to enjoy your time with him, to expose your heart, Approach your prayers as time to get to know God better and to let him know your thoughts, your requests. Number two, 
Pray throughout each day in different situations. It's important to have a prayer time, a time set aside just for prayer, but it's also important to pray while you're going down the road. It's important to pray while you're washing, to pray while you're washing dishes, especially when you're washing dishes. Pray throughout each day in different situations, not only when something comes up and you think of something you need or there's something going wrong or something, you, you have a pain, but, but when you're driving down the road and you see the, the sunshine, thank God for the sunshine. Make it relational. God will meet you anytime, anywhere that you pray. Amen. Pray while you're driving, pray while you're working, pray while you're cooking. Especially if you're cooking for me, pray extra hard. Amen. Number three, get your emotions involved in prayer. Now, don't check out of this before I'm done because I'm going to come back and talk about that. But approaching prayers like business transactions don't involve a lot of your heart. But praying relationally requires you to involve your heart and emotions, which are gifts from God that can teach you important lessons. Emotions are powerful, motivating factors in your life. When you express them to God in prayer, he can help you direct your feelings in the right ways. Getting your, get your emotions involved, but don't rely on your emotions only. So I was on the morning show. I was on the morning show this Sunday. Uh, Brother Craig and, and Brother Sergio asked me if I would join them. And so... I was sitting, I was sitting up here in the morning show, and while while we were doing the morning show, a couple walked in. A guy that had come a few weeks ago and asked us for prayer right around the time of the morning show. Then he left, and he came this time with his wife, and uh, and so when I saw him walk in, I changed my answers a little bit to sort of reach him. So if you felt like on one of those answers where I was going one direction and all of a sudden I went that way, it's because I had someone to preach to for a minute. And so when it was over, they came, they came all the way up. As soon as we closed the show, they came all the way up and they stood right here. And uh, they asked me to pray with them. And when, and when the wife asked, she said this. She said, I feel like my prayers aren't getting anywhere. I feel like my prayers aren't doing any good. Get your emotions involved in prayer, but don't let your emotions guide your prayers. I told her, I said, just because you don't feel it doesn't mean that God's not hearing you. There's a story in the book of Daniel, and I've got to hurry because i still got more ground to cover than, than what I have time for. There's a story in the book of Daniel where Daniel was praying and fasting for 21 days for an answer. And he's praying and fasting and praying and fasting, and the answer's not coming. If you went 21 days without eating and praying for something, and you didn't get an answer, you'd get frustrated, wouldn't you? Well, the Lord sent Daniel an angel. He sent Michael, the angel of war, to, to Daniel. And Michael told him, he said, your prayer is heard. From the first moment you prayed, God heard your prayer. It wasn't the prayer that was hindered. It was, the, he said, the prince and the power of this area was fighting from the answer coming. He said, I've been fighting to get to you. Your prayers weren't stopped by the devil. 
It was the answer getting to you that I had to fight to get the answer. So listen, if you feel like your prayers are doing no good, keep praying. Because your prayers are always heard. Your prayers are always heard. <coughs> so get your emotions involved. But when your emotions turn off, you know, like there, there are some times when, uh, when, you know, when you're, like when you're dating and, and you're, you're, the girl you fall in love with looks you in the eyes and says she loves you and all that, and, and your heart just sort of flutters and, and you can't wait to call again, you can't wait to visit again. Well, let me tell you, sometimes after 30 years, when she looks into your eyes, she doesn't say that. But don't, don't, but don't laugh because you don't either. So what it took to get you to fall in love at 17 shouldn't be what it takes for you to be in love after 30 years of marriage. That's some good preaching right here, even if you are sleepy. My preaching is the cure for insomnia. If you have to have emotion to stay married after 30 years, you don't have much of a relationship. You trust each other because you spent time together. Amen. Let me move on. Luke 11, 1 and 2. And it came to pass that as he was praying, this is Jesus, he was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth, and so on. Jesus prayed. He started his prayer with this, our Father. He started with a relationship term. Hallowed be thy name. Holy, worthy is your name. If you'll focus your prayers relationally rather than transactionally, you're going to see God unlock areas of your prayer life. It's not going to be like, oh, I got to spend so much time in prayer. I got to punch the clock. Have you ever said, I'm going to pray an hour every day, and then about 15 minutes in, you're like, what am I going to talk about now? You're watching the clock, right? Am I right? But if it's relational, it's not a matter of, of I have to spend so much time or I'm not going to be, I'm not going to get my answer. I'm going to be punished. It's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be the, it's because, because that's a transactional viewpoint of prayer, but a relational viewpoint of prayer says, God, I trust you. And I'm going to talk to you from my heart. Have you ever been praying, going down the road, and then you find yourself somewhere you don't know where you are? You just, I mean, you, you're watching the road, but you're, you're not really, and you're like, man, I am three streets over from where I'm wanting to be. I'm not saying that's what you ought to do. Sometimes when, when in the younger years of marriage, I'd be riding down the road, and the side that my wife was sitting on, I'd close that eye and act like I was asleep, just to aggravate. And it came to pass, Luke 11, 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Two things I want to point out quickly. Who was talking to Jesus here? Who? It's not a trick question. Disciples. It was a disciple, a follower, a student, someone who spent time with Jesus. And then he said unto him, Lord. It was a student that acknowledged that Jesus was his Lord. And he said, teach us to pray. You would think that one of the disciples that knew Jesus was Lord would already know how to pray. They said, teach us to pray like you pray. It indicates that they knew there was something different about how Jesus prayed than the way they prayed. As a Jew, the one thing they knew better than anything else was prayer. Jews were taught to pray three times a day, every morning, every afternoon, and every evening. They knew that praying regularly enabled them to build their relationship with God. So from the time they were babies, they were taught to pray. When a baby was born, they, were, they had prayers that they read over the children so they would be born hearing the sound of prayer. In Deuteronomy, it applied a congregational prayer, prayers that had to be prayed for certain sacrifices. There were prayers that they had to pray for certain holidays and feast days. Moses mandated that one who offers a sacrifice recite a specific prayer. When Israel returned from Babylonian exile, Ezra the scribe and the 120 prophets and sages realized that Jews had forgotten their daily prayers while they were in Babylon. And so they set forth a text of 18 prayers that had to be prayed three times a day. 18 plus 18 is 36, right? Plus 18 more is how much? 54 prayers a day. Morning, 18 in the morning, 18 in the afternoon, 18 in the evening, plus more if it was a holiday. In addition to the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers, all Jews, men and women, were required to recite the Shema twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They had to do that. So now we're up to 56, right? Not counting if it's a holiday or special occasion or you're bringing something else. These are prayers that aren't prompted by, by need, like, oh, I, I've hurt myself or my baby's sick. These are prayers that they had to pray every day because it was a matter of their religious life. Prayer dominated the life of an ancient Jew. If the disciples knew anything when Jesus found them, the one thing they knew about was prayer. From the time they were babies, they knew about prayer. They had prayed the Shema. They had prayed their 18 benedictions over and over every day for as long as they could remember. From the time they were little babies, they learned to pray these 56 prayers every day. And when you think about people that prayed like that when they went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. It shows that prayer must have a life different than just reciting certain things over and over and over. 
They knew if I am going to do your work, i got to learn how to pray like you. My old habit of prayer is not enough for me to do what you've called me to do, God. The old way I prayed, reciting stuff over and over and over and over, will not get me where you want me to be. So, Lord, teach us to pray. We know how to recite things. We know how to go through the list. We know how to be transactional. But God, teach us. Jesus, teach us to pray like you pray. Instead of just reciting 54 prayers three times a day, 18 in the morning, in the afternoon, and evening, instead of just going through that, let me learn how to pray like you when you step to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Father, I thank you because... You hear me always when I pray. He raised Lazarus not because he recited a prayer. He raised Lazarus because he was in a prayer relationship with the Father. Dead things come to life when we pray relational prayers. Life changes when we pray relational prayers. Teach us. To pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Not just transactional prayers, if then statements that give us what we want, but God, help me to pray in relationship with you. So as your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed, you can lift your hands if you want to. I want to ask you, I want to ask you to ask. Jesus, to teach you how to pray. I know, God, I prayed ritual prayers. I know, God, I prayed transactional prayers. I know how to repeat phrases and statements. But, Lord, teach me to pray like you. Help me to share your heart. Help me to open my heart. Help me, oh God, to spend time in prayer. I'm going to tell you, it will unlock things in your prayer life. It will unlock something in your life when you realize that your Abba wants to hear your voice. It's not a requirement. It's not because I'm a servant and I'm trying to avoid punishment. It's because I'm a son and I'm in relationship, and you hear me always when I pray. Can you pray with me right now? Lord, I thank you. God, I thank you. Lord, teach me how to pray. Lord, I know there's times I have to go through lists to pray certain things. I know, God, that there's needs that we have and people that we need to pray for and things that we need to pray for, but God, teach me how to pray beyond just that to open my heart. Come on, as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, I know you may not want to do it here when there's a lot of people sitting right next to you, but I challenge you sometime tomorrow when you're alone, maybe riding down the road or sitting for a few minutes in your house by yourself in quiet, why don't you just tell Jesus, Lord, this is something that been, I've been worrying about. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the answer is. God, this is how, every time I think about it, I get anxious. Every time I think about it, I get fearful. Every time I think about it, I get confused. I don't know what to do. 
And so, God, I'm going to ask you. I'm just going to tell you how I feel about it. And you need to watch as God, over time, will begin to impress your heart and spirit and talk back to you. Amen. You believe it? There's power. There's power in prayer. There's power in prayer. I remember one time, years ago, I was a teenager. You can stand with me. I'm closing. There was a teenager, and there was a young person that uh, wanted to come to church, and their parent wouldn't let them. And I thought I was doing God's will. I asked God, Lord, if she's not going to let them come to church, just kill her. I was transacting with God. I am so glad God didn't answer that prayer. The right prayer would have been, God, you know this situation. And you know the best way to work it out. God, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to make it right. God, I don't know. And so, God, I'm just going to ask you to work on it and give me the right words to say, the right things to do. God, teach me to pray. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray, let an anointing of prayer come upon this congregation. Revive our prayer lives, God. Revolutionize our prayer lives. Lord, help us to build those relationships with you, God. Lord, help us to find the secret place of the Most High. Deep calleth unto deep, God. There's something deep in my spirit that wants to reach something deep in yours. God, I pray that you help us to build a prayer life in Jesus' name. Next week, we're going to talk about praying the word, and then we're going to get into intercessory prayer and, uh, and different facets of a prayer life. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.